Hello, I'm Dr. Greg Winteregg, CEO of the Private Dentist Alliance. I want to talk to all of you students out there today who are wondering what your future is going to be like as a career in dentistry, as an assistant, as a hygienist, as a dentist, where is this profession going with the rapid increase of the DSO movement? I'm here to tell you the PDA is going to help you and I want you to become a member today. It is free. Now, why should you become a member? You're gonna get weekly video updates from me and you're gonna get regular updates of our newsletters from the Alliance on exactly what is happening and how we are going to help preserve and protect the private practice of dentistry. Now to me, the most important advantage is you are going to get access to our job board. What is that? Our private practicing members all have access to our PDA job board, which means if they have an opening in their private practice of assistant, hygienist, doctor, front office staff, they're going to be able to post it. And you're gonna be able to check up regularly. And as our membership grows, we're gonna be covering larger and larger territories across the United States. If you are looking for a job in any position in the office of a private practice, you need to become a student member today. It is free. Go to www.privatedental.org and become a student member today. You're gonna to love your benefits. Do it now. What is up, guys? It's your boy, Matt Havis, back at it with the Dental Student Vibes Podcast. Today, we have a super cool interview for you. We have Chief Financial Analyst, Eric Miller. He is sitting here talking to us about how to manage your finances, how to keep everything in line as you build your wealth using your dental practice, and how to make your dental practice fuel your life. So tune in, check it out, follow us on Instagram at dental.student.vibes. Let us know, give us a like, comment, review. We love to hear your feedback. Stay safe and vibe on. Welcome back to another episode of the Dental Student Vibes podcast. I'm your host, Seth Kalish, Cole Herzik, Matt Havis. They're all here. And today we have the one and only Eric Miller. Eric has been in the financial planning industry for over 20 years. He's the co-owner of Econologics Financial Advisors and the chief financial advisor. He has a degree from Capital University and is a registered financial consultant and licensed insurance agent. He takes pride in helping practice owners become the financial heroes of their own stories and has taken this passion to over 600 families in the past decade. During this time, he's had over 15,000 conversations with practice owners regarding money, investing, practice expansion, practice transitions, taxes, asset protection, estate planning, and helping them shape their financial attitude toward abundance. Econologics Financial Advisors is an Inc. 5000 honoree for 2019 as one of the fastest growing companies in the U.S. Eric, the man, you've done it all, man. How are you today? Jeez, man. It made me age me right there. It makes me feel old. My gosh. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you on here. So much stuff for us to talk about. Honestly, we, we love these topics. Um, we love anybody who can help out dentists, dental students, future dentists, anybody. You know, it's it's we work so hard to get to this point and then boom, we get slapped in the face with a bunch of student loans. And, you know, you really got to figure out how to properly allocate your funds once you get out of school and all the new dentists as well. So Eric, can you give us a little uh, more background about yourself, how long you've been doing this and 
Oh, that's I awesome. mean, yeah, real quick. I mean, I started in Ohio and I had a pretty traditional financial planning background. I don't know if you guys ever dealt with financial advisors in the past, but you know, mostly it's just most advisors. First question is how much do you got? Right. For me to invest that that's the, that's the first question that most advisors have. And, you know, when we started 12 years ago, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to do that. I, I want to work with entrepreneurs. I want to work with business owners because they, they feel like they're in charge of their destiny. So I want to work with people like that. And then I want to work with, with, um, with people where I, I felt like I can actually make a meaningful difference in their finances. And so we, you know, we start, we picked a niche and it was working with private practice owners. And, uh, you know, I, I found out in about, I don't know, about 10 minutes that uh, if I'm going to help uh, private practice owners, whether it's dentists or veterinarians or whoever it is, I got to know something about where their money's coming from. And that is their business. And if I don't know how that business works or operates or how to make it better or improve it, then the cash flow that they're going to, they're not going to earn enough cash flow that I can show them how to channel that to the household so that can, they can create, you know, personal financial wealth. So that's really where, you know, working with practice owners and, and, and dental practices started was just me trying to figure out like, how does this, this, uh, this practice work and how can I show these, these people how to better utilize it for the benefit of their household? That's awesome. So Eric, can you start us off and talk about how to treat your practice like an investment? Yeah, it's pretty simple. So look at it this way. Like if you look at corporate America out there, you guys ever heard the, con the, uh, the concept of a parent company? Like if you look at like some of these really big corporations, they all have like this parent company, right? And that parent company owns, you know, like Facebook, for example, owns like 83 different companies. Okay. Those are all junior companies to the parent company of Facebook. So, you know, you look at it, uh, you know, at the whole, the whole nation is made up of households, right? That's what's, that's what it's made up of. Like all the businesses out there are not, they're, they're owned by individuals. They're owned by households, right? So the first concept that I try to get through to people is like, look, number one, your household is a business. You got to run it as such. Okay. And your practice is simply an investment of the household. So therefore you got to make sure that, that, that like, if you had an investment, what do you do to it? You take care of it, right? You make sure that it's profitable. You make sure that it's sustainable. You make sure that it's valuable. And that's where it starts. You know, your, your practice isn't a job where you go to it, right? If you're just a practitioner minded person, then it is. But if you're really going to uh, have your practice worth something, you got to understand how to be a good executive and how to be a good owner. And those are the three roles that you have. And if you can play those roles in owning a business, know how to do them really, really well, then you're, then now you're treating this thing like an actual investment and not just a job. Right. That makes sense. Definitely. Total sense. Yeah. Yeah. So now when we're getting into, okay, let me, let me start you off here. So I know, or, so I've been looking at a lot of practices, right? To, yep. to buy. And I see there are so many practices out there where they're doing like three, 400 and the dentist is taking home like 9,100. And, you know, I know obviously they're like phasing out and stuff, but like, that's what you're saying. Like, you know, you work hard for everything and you need to, especially when you're on your way out, you need to treat it like an investment 
and not just let all the production fall downhill and all that sort of thing. Yeah, for that's that's usually what happens. Like you look at the timeline of a practice owner, you know, you first start out, you're all gung-ho, you know, I'm going to build this thing. And then you get stuck as just a practitioner, right? And and that's and that's all you do. And then after 10 or 12 years, you're like, well, I'm, you know, I'm making a pretty decent living, but I'm not really interested in this other work, you know, that I have to do if I really want to grow and expand this thing. So what do they do? They just kind of let it go. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you look at anybody that doesn't take care of themselves after a while, what happens? They start getting fat. They start not taking care of themselves. Same thing with your practice, right? So, you know, they start letting the profit come down. They start not caring about getting new patients in the door. They stop pushing services that they should. And all of a sudden, this thing that may have been worth, you know, six or 700,000 at its height is now only going to be worth three or 400,000 because the earnings aren't there to, to match what the, the value would be, you mm-hmm. know? So, yeah, I, you know, I, I try to really push people like, you know, the, 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 before you sell your practice, man, you should be at your highest revenue and highest profit margin in the last couple of years, if you really want to get max value for it, you right. know? But man, there, there's, there's definitely a lot of dentists out there that just don't have that mindset. And again, it's just, it's your owner and executive mindset. That is the key. Cause you guys are all going to school to be awesome practitioners, right? And you guys are going to be the best practitioners in the world. And that's great. That is the lowest paying part of owning a business. Mm-hmm. If you're a good executive and a super good owner that can, that thinks strategically, that, that can build a team, build a good culture you know what I mean? And, and have that kind of that mindset of how do I expand? Then now you're being a good owner and that's where the profit comes in. And then that's, that's where the value comes in. That's know? excellent. So then you're on the subject of, you know, wanting to make sure that practice is at its highest grossing number right before you're about to exit. So let's talk about that. So yeah. how can a practitioner ensure prior to selling, how can they ensure that they're you know, taking those profits to the absolute max one to two to even 10 times that number? What can they do with some steps? Okay. Well, I mean, first off, you, you know, what, what areas does a buyer look at when they're buying a business, right? Like what are, what are areas that they want to see? Number one, they want to make sure that it's not all reliant just upon one person. So it'd be, you know, obviously in, in, in dental, you have, you know, obviously the, the dentist, but there's other services that you can provide inside of that practice. So making sure that, that every, every division, every uh, income source is evaluated, uh, making sure that, it's, that, it's, that area is growing um, and that you're not reliant just on one income source. So like I would, I would break down all of my income sources that I have in my practice and you know, figure out which are the ones are the highest demand which ones are the highest profit and which ones are the easiest to deliver and, and build my business around those, those income sources. A buyer is going to want that, right? Cause they're going to want to be able to have those same things. Um, what else? Well, you know, obviously all the corporate records and everything need to be in really, really good shape and your financials should be in really, really good shape because again, someone, if they're going to buy something, they don't want to buy a mess, right? right? They don't want to buy something that is like, Oh my God, I got to fix all this stuff. There's back taxes owed. They don't owe, you know, their equipment is in terrible shape, you know, I have to fix all this stuff, right? So your, your assets and your equipment of your, of your practice are really, really key. Make sure that those things are, are in, are in tip top shape. And then the facility itself, you know, are you leasing it? Is it a good lease arrangement? Cause if I'm buying, if I'm buying a practice and, and I'm leasing the building, 
I want to make sure I'm buying a good lease, you right. know, something that, that, that I can, you know, is going to be a fixed cost. So there's, there's all kinds of things you can do as a, as an owner to make sure that it, all you're trying to do is, is transition this valuable thing that you created to somebody else and make it super easy on them to be able to take ownership of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you can do that, then you're going to be able to get top dollar. You can, you can, you can ask top dollar for it. But if there's all these problems, then it, you're, you're just not going to get the value that you thought you were going to get. Right. So those are, those are a couple of things. I hope those help. Yeah, definitely. So, okay. Let, I'm looking at practices right now. What are some of the, let's say most important KPIs, key production indicators that you would say I need to really focus on? And also, so Eric, we're, we're before we get into this, yeah. I was thinking like, we should make some sort of algorithm to like put all the numbers, all the KPIs together, and then somehow it ranks all the practices that you're looking at. You know what I mean? That would be awesome. It would be cool. How many practices are, you know, are you guys looking at? Is it just like, Oh, I, I'm, I got a several and you're from the, uh, the Florida yeah. Bay area. Yeah. I got, I got a few that I'm looking at right now. Okay. For me, uh, new patients is always an indicator, right? Cause you, if you're going to, if you're going to buy something, you don't want it to be dying. And if there's no new, new patients is always a, a good indicator for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, What's the online presence like of that practice? That'd be something that I would certainly look at. What's the tenure of their staff like? That was that would be something I would look at. Because again, if I'm going to go in there, do I got to clean up a mess? Do I got a clean house? You know, I mean, if they had a if they had a practice manager that's you know seventy years old and is just stuck in their ways, and I got to go in there and I got to I got to fire this person, you know, and 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 yeah. and, and do it happens. You know, I see it all happen all the time. So, you know, I think, you know, when I, in, in my conversations with buyers, you know, because I'll talk to some of the big corporate buyers out there and I'll ask them, I'm like, hey, man, what are you really looking at? Like, what are you looking at? And in most cases, you know, that these these underlying things you don't think about the the the, the culture of the organization. Like I, I saw a, uh, a 14 million dollar deal get nixed because the corporate buyer found out how toxic the environment was amongst the staff wow. and they're like you know what i don't care how what the cash flow looks like i don't want anything to do with this wow and they nixed the deal the day before yeah how do you think that buyer felt how wait so how uh can you can you tell us a little more like how do they find out like these intangible you know sort of qualities about a practice like the culture well they ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. when they're going through the due diligence phase Right. They interview people. They they make sure that uh, like, I mean, if you're going to spend 15 million dollars on something, I guarantee you're going to send a team in there and you're going to know the ins and outs of that practice, you fine know, tooth um, comb, yeah, with a fine tooth comb. Right. So, you know, maybe it's not on what you guys are doing. It's kind of a lesser scale, but it's kind of the same thing that I would look at. Right. Like what 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 am I buying? Because you're buying people. I mean, when you buy a business, you're going to be buying people. It's not just equipment and, you know, lists and um, th- those kinds of things are also, you know, the, it's the systems. Like, do they have, do they have job descriptions that are written up? Do they have, they have an organizational chart in the business? Like, you know, what are some of these things that, that would allow me to just to get in there and, and be able to work so that I can, um, you know, start growing the practice. Uh, you know, I'm going to need people that know what they're doing and how to do it to be able to do that. 
you know, so training is a big thing too, when it comes to staff, like what's the, do they have a training system set up to train new people? Is there a hiring system set mm -hmm. up to hire new people? What's that look like? I mean, it, it is a lot of things, but this is, again, this is, this is where you get paid. It's not for just doing dental work. It's the, if you really want to get paid, it's, it, it's this executive and owner functions. That is really where you guys will separate yourself from the, the guys that you're buying from. I mean, look at the practices that you're looking at right now, three, $400,000 in revenue. Yeah. I'm not interested. I mean, yeah. Hell no, man. I mean, you should be looking at like, how, how can I build this thing to two, $3 million? Right. You know, if, if not more. So here's the problem. Some of the brokers that I'm talking to, they're like, um, most of these 800 plus practices, they get bought up like that. And like a lot of times, uh, like, you know, the bigger groups will buy them Heartland for 110% of their production or something like that. Yeah. It, it, this is where the numbers game comes into play. Not, not all these dentists want to sell to corporate, right. right? I mean, they don't. Some of these guys want to leave a legacy. The majority of them would probably prefer to be able to transition to somebody else. Uh, you just got to talk to them. You know, you just got to find out like, you know, and, and kind of hit that point. Like, look, I don't want that. You don't, you don't want to just sell to corporate like everybody else. You know, let me, let me, let me show you how to, to leave a legacy. And, uh, you know, that may require them to uh, carry a note you know, cause you know, you guys, right. I don't know how you guys are with your finances, but I don't, you know, having a million, a million and a half dollars just sitting around to buy yeah. the, the practice in the real estate may not be in the cards. So you either have to go, go, go get a loan from the bank of America, whoever it is, or to have them carry a note, which yeah, would be I, really, I really good spent, for them. I just spent my last million on my Bugatti. So I'm <laughs> there you go. well, hopefully it's like, it, it, is it red or is it black? So yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. Um, it's but, yeah, there you go. But to my point, you know, these, I, I think you can spin a deal with these guys just by, just by calling as many as you possibly can. And you'll find, you'll find them. You'll find some out there. Hell, right. I probably have some clients out there that, that, that were, are looking to sell, but hey, uh, right here, yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right. I'll try to hook you up, but uh, yeah, man, it's just a numbers game of trying to talk to as many people. But I think if you, if you really, if you do that, you'll, you're going to find, all you need is one or two, man. All you need is one or two. There's, there's plenty of people out there that, that would like to transition their business without selling the corporate. Right. That's my, I mean, and, but the problem is though, like the, the temptation is there, you know, like there's, I'm from the Fort Lauderdale area. There's a lot of dentists in that area that they built a beautiful practice. It makes a lot of money and yep. come in and they're offering two, 200% like of what it is like and a, like a doctor like, like you know a private practicing doctor can't offer that you know so if you're just in it for the money and you're like wow i can just hit the lottery right now after all my hard work it's tempting yeah. there's a lot of temptation to it I, I get it man i get it, it it's like you know and i guess it all depends on if they've if they've if they've handled their personal finances as well you know because some of them you know if they if they were smart then you know they they kind of built, insulated their household and, you know, created reserves and passive income and paid off their debt and all that, where they're not like reliant upon the practice sale, then maybe they're more, maybe it's like not as important to get the big high multiples for them. Okay. So <laughs> that would be, you know, that would be a case for, you know, how to get someone to, to convince someone if they're, if they're, they're not in need of big corporate multiples, but yeah, you're right. I, you know, I don't know how long these multiples are going to be able to last uh we'll see as long as there's a lot of cheap money around and there's a lot of these big private equity groups that need to position this money to get returns 
they're 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 overpaying for stuff right now. I just don't know how long it's going to last. Mm-hmm. Right. So then, Eric, taking a step back here. So for some of our listeners that aren't as well versed with some of this stuff and need, maybe need a little bit more help than things that we're talking about in this discussion. So it's always good to have a team or to know who to go to to delegate and to learn these things that they need to know when looking at a practice, when evaluating. So what is what do you think is needed in that you know tool belt for that new you know new grad or student or current practitioner that's looking to purchase practices and looking to do some evaluations who do they yeah, need it, it is a good question because you do need to like once you jump into that that realm of i want to be an owner now i need to build like my little mini financial team around me certainly you're going to need uh, a good qualified cpa because they're going to be the ones that'll do a lot of analysis of the profit and loss statements and can help you with that so and if you can if you can find like an industry specific uh, CPA, like a, a industry specific dental CPA, that would, that would be beneficial. Um, you know, uh, you guys have broker, a, a, a broker, someone that can do like a, a proper valuation or professional valuation. You would want to have someone like that on your team. Most definitely. Um, you're going to need to have a good attorney. So you'll need a business attorney, someone that, that understands, um, how, you know, the, all the different agreements that you're going to need. Uh, in terms of the acquisition of the practice. And then, you know, I'm, I'm an industry specific financial advisor, right? So um, my job is to, is to make sure that the person's household is, um, or the practice owner's household is, is taken care of. So I think having a, a good financial advisor that understands how your business integrates in your household is also really key as well. So that, those would be some of the people that, and then, you know, a, a practice consultant. I don't know if you guys ever have, have seen practice consultants out there. I, I really, I, I can't tell you how valuable I think a really good consultant is, practice consultant, business consultant can be in just keeping your focused attention uh, on building value in the business. I think that's super, super key. Because, you know, you get going, start making money, you know, you want to do all the other, all the, all these other things and you, and you kind of forget about taking care of the business and hence, you know, the things that happen to the business happen and that's no good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there's a huge misconception with that too, because people think like if you're seeing a practice consultant or like even in your personal life, you're seeing a therapist, you have problems, but that doesn't mean you have problems. You can just go to optimize everything, you know, see what can be done better, you know, like that's. I, I'm just telling the the guys that I've seen that have the biggest, most valuable businesses all started out working with business consultants, right? And maybe you don't stay with them forever because you learn and you figure out how to, how to run a business. You know, you figure out all these things on your own. You figure out, just like you said, what KPIs I'm going to, I'm going to use, what management system am I going to use? Am am I one of those guys that's going to be like an owner practitioner or do I want to be an owner executive? You know, you kind of figure out yourself from there and and then you know you you just you you take it you know you take it to the top right but um i think starting out getting that kind of help is super super valuable just to help you on on running the business Mm -hmm. very cool so like you were just mentioning um about what you do so what are some of the more common questions that you get from practice owners maybe uh uh one two or three of the most common problems that they might have or Something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, it's it's number one. Most people underestimate the amount of income, assets, and resources that they actually need to to be able to live the life that they want to live. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what you guys have ever been told. Like, how much do you need? Five million bucks in assets? 
eight million bucks in assets, two million dollars in assets. You know, yeah. what is it that you think you need? Nine. It's yeah, nine. There you go. You like two eighty or something off of your investments. Yeah, yeah. and but that you got to start thinking, and, and that most people don't think like that. Most people, it's they've always been told their whole life, "Hey, man, if you just like save a couple million dollars in your four hundred one k." then at some point in time, you'll be able to retire and everything will be, you know, will be good. And I'm like, no, you can't think like that. I mean, you're only one economic crash, one shutdown, one health issue, uh, one lawsuit away from losing millions of dollars. So you, your target's got to be, you know, in that seven to $10 million range starting off with, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, I got to build value in my business. I got to make sure that it's profitable and I got to take a big chunk of that profit and use that to create other income sources while I'm building my business at the same time. Right. And my goal is to get to that $10 million in assets because just like you said, you take 10 million, even at like a 5% interest rate, what is that? Half a million dollars a year in income, you know, that that's, that's the number, you know? So I think the first thing is that you can't underestimate how much you need, right? So, you know, as an advisor, my job is to give you targets. It's like, this is your target, right? It's not 2 million, it's 10 million, right? And at least well, that's the target, then we can start, you know, figuring out like what's the gradient approach to be able to get there. And, you know, I'll tell you another problem that, that I see a lot of, and maybe not so much in the dental space, but, you know, it does happen where, you know, people aren't really paying themselves. They pay themselves as practitioners, right? You guys pay yourself a salary or whatever it is, mm -hmm. but they don't, they don't compensate themselves as owners. So the first thing that I'd have any one of you guys do when you first started your business, I'd have you set up an, an outside what I call wealth storage account. And I'd have you take the first 10% of whatever you make and just set it aside in that account, mm -hmm. right? for the benefit of creating other income streams outside of the business, just like a bill, right? Like 10% right off the top, learn how to operate that business and your lifestyle on the rest, but take that first 10% and it's gone. Right. And, and I've, I've seen people save two, three, $400,000 in a year just by making that a bill, you know, and That's it's fantastic. It's, it is the best thing you could ever do for yourself. And it makes that owner feel like, oh man, this is actually worth like all the blood, sweat and tears and all the notes that I got to carry and all the BS I got to deal with all the staff and all that stuff. It's like, this is worth it because I, I'm paying myself as I should. Right. So I think that'd be another big thing I would do. Okay. So, okay. I got a, I got a ton of questions for you now <laughs> about all this. So, I haven't gotten to taxes yet guys, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, listen, I love taxes, man. It sounds crazy, but I love taxes. You're the only so, one that does. <laughs> I, I love taxes. Tom Wheelwright. Yeah. So uh, yeah. with that uh, wealth storage account is, yeah. are you allocating that money from your profits generated? That's not from your, your income. It's not like a uh, income tax. It is revenue. The, the money comes in from whatever services that you're delivering that week, 10% goes right into that well storage account. Okay. So it's almost like a consulting or man personal management account or something like that. You want to call it whatever you want to, man. Okay, uh, cool. People have named it. I just came up, we just finally came up with a well storage account, right? Yeah. I've heard other people say other things to it. I'm just trying to figure out a way in which that's going to be the central account. Like, I mean, obviously you guys want to build passive income, right? Right. That's where it's coming from. Okay. So then what are you uh, putting that money into? Are you putting it into like real estate or like, how are you, 
you know, generally I'll split that up into three different buckets, you know, and, you know, I know a lot of people have different affinity for different types of investment as a, as a fiduciary though, I have to be somewhat prudent. Like I can't just tell people just buy, I'll put all your money into real estate because it's not prudent for me to do that. So typically what I'll do is I'll say, break it up in a third, a third, a third, 33%, 33%, 33%, put 33% into kind of traditional stock and dividend paying, you know, investing, um, 33% into, uh, believe it or not, insurance-based products. That'd be like cash value life insurance and those kinds of things. And I know that you guys have been told those things are like the worst thing since the devil. They're not. And I can tell you, you look at some of the biggest banks that are out there, they own hundreds of billions of dollars of boring old cash value life insurance. It's a real stable asset. You guys can use it to leverage and buy other assets at some point in time. And it, you know, you're going to earn a lot more than you would in just sitting in a bank or a CD. And then the other 33% would go into <laughs> whatever real estate endeavors you want to get into, whether you're like, you like to, you know, you want to buy it yourself and try to manage it, or you, you want to deal with like uh, operators out there that, that kind of specialize in self-storage or apartment complexes or, you know, mobile home parks or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can do that. So I, I typically have people split it up in those, in those three categories, a third, a third, a third, but there's nothing written in stone that said you couldn't do 50% in real estate and, you know, the rest in the other categories as well. Right. Okay. So now um, what if you're an associate now, how do you figure that out? That's, that's always my question. Cause you know, a lot of docs will associate for the first couple of years. Do you go as a 1099 or what do you do? Well, I, uh, you know, that's probably yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have a really good answer for that. As far as saving though, I, you know, you would just up it to like probably about 30 or 40% of your money. Mm -hmm. I would, I would bank on saving right out, right off the top. Right. Wow. And I'd live like a friggin' student and I'd knock off all of the, uh, you know, it sucks. Uh, you know, the, the guys that, that came out of school that I saw that really were able to handle their debt the best. They just, they just kind of continued living. They, number one, they produced like mad. Like they, they didn't, they didn't like say, okay, I'm just going to coast. They, they went in there and they produced like monsters for their, for whoever they were working with. And they, they saved 30% of their income, <laughs> excuse me. And then they work like hell to get their student loan debts paid off as fast as they humanly possibly could. And yeah, they didn't get to buy the big, nice car or have the big, nice house at that point in time. But I'm telling you, 10, 15 years later, they have, they are in a much better financial shape than the guys that didn't do that, that are still doing it. So that would be my advice on in that end. That's great. Yeah. Cause that's always something that we're, we're always thinking about. Um, now, you know, I think there's this idea that, you know, the, the student loans shouldn't be paid back or just kind of get forgiven or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know, man, I, I guess I'm one of those guys that, Hey, look, if you made an agreement to pay it back, then you should pay it back. Right. And I think that if you have that mentality, then you're going to open yourself up to have a lot better things happen to you than those people that just kind of like you take are irresponsible about it. Like everybody I've ever seen, Worst one I saw was like a, a girl had like a half million dollars of student loan debt. And I'm just like, she's like, just trying to figure out all these ways that she can navigate. And I was like, what, 
you know, you, why did you sign on this thing? That come to find out, she used most of the money to go travel abroad and do some stupid. Oh, stuff. that's good. Yeah, you know. Backpack yeah. across Europe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't. I might. Then my sympathy level went almost to zero at that point in time. But look, I think at the end of the day, you, you you know, you guys got the big debt. Okay, it's no problem. You guys can make a lot of money. You know, mm -hmm. right off the top. You know, right. veterinarians or optometrists or some of the other people we deal with, they can't make as much as you guys can. Right. So you guys can really handle that quickly. And, and still bank money at the same time. You know, and it may suck living for a couple of years, but it, it's totally worth it because you prepare yourself financially and you look a lot better on paper for a bank when you're going to ask for a million dollars in loans too. Mm -hmm. you know? So that would be another thing I would think about. Right, so speaking of that, um, when you have that, all those student loans, um, when you want to, do, I mean, do you think that it's a good idea to either uh, like kind of, push the loans back opposite to what you were saying and go for the practice and try and take on more leverage so that you can off. buy the practice or what do you think? I can hear you. Can you hear us now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, our internet. Okay. So do you think it's better or do you think that it's okay to take on more loans and reduce the amount that you're paying back to your student loans, take on the business loans to buy the practice and just kind of pay the minimum on the student loans. I mean, if you get a good opportunity to do that, I mean, who am I to tell you no? You, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I, I try to get people like before they really start looking at expansion and business acquisition to try to handle their personal side as best you can to have plenty of reserves and debt and everything like that. But one thing I do know is that if you got the bug, you know, you guys can just make anything go right. You know, so if you find a good opportunity, I wouldn't have that as a consideration. I'd be like, man, if this is a good opportunity. I'm just going to jump on it right now right. and then just and just and then roll with it, you right. know, but, but <laughs> there there are things that I do try to look at financially speaking before people try to like do a big expansion project or buy another practice or something like that, mm -hmm. because I don't want to overburden like the weight of obligation is, is really rough on people like you can you ever see what debt does to people. I mean, it really does kind of put them in a, in a negative, kind of a, a negative headspace. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, you know, if, if you feel like you can do it and you can make it go right, then do it and make it go right. Okay. So here's, here's a interesting stat. Um, I, I was talking to somebody recently who was trying to get a loan for their second practice, like you were just saying, expanding, right? And they, I guess the bank told them that they need 1.38 times uh, their expected overhead of the future practice and then they'll they need that at their current practice so that they can that, and then they would approve them for the loan yeah that's that's kind of like an interesting stat there um yeah banks are getting i mean if you're going to ask me how to try to figure out what banks figure out man they are some of the things I, i've seen people with pristine balance sheets tons of cash right equity in their buildings and everything like that still get denied loans for some really stupid reason and then you know you look out there and you you know you have other people that I, i'm looking at i'm like how in the hell did the bank approve you for 3.5 million dollars <laughs> i'm like like you're a hot mess like how did you do that i'm like mm, you know we just applied i'm like okay so the lending system is is certainly not super rational i guess you just the probabilities are going to be better that if you do have cash having cash definitely helps. 
having something of collateral definitely helps. Mm -hmm. And the real estate being involved would probably definitely help right. if you're going to acquire something. Because mo most banks love the real estate part of that, if right. you can get it. So recently with COVID and everything, um, pandemic, what have you seen with uh, practice transitions in terms of financing? Have you seen like, has it been like multiple sources? Like you said, like seller financing in addition to bank financing? How's it been looking? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a combination of the two. Most, now, the corporates don't need that. They can just go in there and they usually buy like, you know, 70% of your practice and then you leave 30% or 20% in there and, and then you're just working for them, right? And you got a little piece of ownership in there. But they usually pay up front pretty well. Uh, and, you know, they may hold back a little bit, but it's not much. Um, but, you know, if you want to do like a, a sell to an associate uh, or some kind of an internal sale, you're just going to have to be willing to carry a note if you're, if you're a buyer, I think. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, look, I mean, if you mentor the person right, Number one, you can get um, a pretty good interest rate on the loan. You know, you can, I mean, a buyer can probably charge like someone, you know, like you guys, like six or 7% mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a riskier endeavor. Um, and where are you going to find six or 7% out there right now? Right. I mean, it's just not, it's just not happening. Yeah. And then of course the, uh, the capital gains tax that you would incur as a, as a seller, uh, if you do a, if you do like a, um, uh, a seller financing, it spreads out the capital gain tax over the time, over the term of the installment. Right. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of minimizes that, that liability. Um, so that would be another strategy that if I'm selling that, that can help from a capital gains point of view, because that number is going to go up, you know, probably in the next year or two. Yeah. And mm -hmm. if you're start making a lot of money, then, you know, you could really get hit in the mouth with 30% capital gains, 35% capital gains. Yeah. Don't move to California guys. <laughs> have you seen um like people do from like the smaller local banks that are more willing to give uh the loans have you seen people do like loans from multiple different banks is that a common thing you know you probably can't i, I haven't seen that it's usually a combination of a seller finance and then just okay. a, a bank loan and you know i know that there's you know banks that work specifically with probably new dentists that that uh are pretty prevalent out there as well okay Okay, so now backing up to what you were talking about before, I'm, I'm very interested in, you, you said that kind of $10 million mark as a goal, right? Yeah. So talking about your clients that have reached that $10 million mark, what is the theme with their financial um, activities? <clears throat> what, what are some investments that they kind of, uh, I guess, in, invested in? And then also what was their attitude? Were they super frugal or were they just like, throwing everything into all these different investments. No, they, 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 they were willing to start on a gradient. When I say they kind of started small, but they started with something right away, right? And it was, it was the habits. Like your wealth, you know, I mean, you know, when you, do, when you ever talk with an advisor, they're like gonna give you like this chart that's gonna show you if you like put $10,000 away for 20 years, it's kind of linear, right? Well, man, your, your financial life isn't just a straight line. Right. It, it, what ends up happening if you really are doing the right things is like the majority of your wealth, it's kind of like a hockey stick, right? It, you're going to see it really, really multiply and kind of what's that term? Um, exponentially. Yeah. Exponentially. Yeah. Towards those last, you know, five or six years, that's where you really start seeing a majority of your wealth 
<laughs> increase. But a lot of my friends that started, you know, were in, in like that million dollar practice range or just started out, you know, again, it was, it was paying themselves that 10%. That was a big thing that they did. It was being super aggressive on taxes, not just taking their accountants like conservative viewpoint and saying, no, 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 let, 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 let's utilize some, you know, advanced track strategies. And, and really and truly, it was just making, making sure that the business grew at a, at, that was important to them, just the, the growth of the business, because that is the engine of your wealth until it's not, mm -hmm. right? That should be the end of your focus. 90% of your attention should be, how do I build a more profitable and valuable business? And then over time, by doing that, by taking that 10%, now they're able to have, they can look, oh my God, now I got like two or $3 million just sitting aside right here, right? And, it, and it, number one, it gives them confidence. It makes the wives feel good, right? They can wipe out their debt, you know? And then they, and you know, now they can just concentrate on continuing to grow the practice. Like the, the value of a practice in your real estate can really grow really, really fast you know, because yeah. of the, of the way the multiples are. I mean, the higher the earnings, the higher the multiple. So if you can increase your earnings, then the multiple, which is what the value is based upon can increase really, really fast as well. So it's not unusual for me to see someone go from like a, you know, a million and a half dollar practice to a, to a $3 million practice in the scope of like maybe a year and a half, two years, just because they, they, they get their earnings, you know, increasing, they add more associates and, and they build their business that way. Right. But that's where a majority of your wealth is going to be is, is created is your practice, your real estate. Right. And then, you know, the best thing you can do is just is just keep stacking that 10 percent to, you know, to use that as as leverage to acquire other assets, whatever they are. Awesome. Yeah, I love that little fact that you gave us now. So when we, we've been discussing a lot about like the business aspect and like the, owning the practice and stuff, but what are some of the most common problems that you see with the personal finances of the doctor when you evaluate their house and home, you know, yeah. they, they run their household with their wife, kids, whatever. Um, I, I think the number one, most of them don't have a plan. They just kind of operate on, uh, you know, whatever they've been told to do. Uh, it's not having like a, 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 a plan that, that has a, um, very descriptive ideal, like, I always start off like, what would be the ideal financial scene for a household? Like what we start, let's start there. Like what's the ideal financial scene for a household? Number one, it would be a household that has, you know, an abundance of income coming in from multiple sources. You'd be free of all bad debt. Um, you'd have uh, your assets protected from taxes, inflation, and lawsuits. Your business would be profitable and valuable and you'd have time to pursue ever whatever life goals that you had like that's that's the definition of financial freedom right there that's awesome. right start there okay and then look at your present condition like where are you well the only way you're going to be able to do that is if, if you use statistics now you mentioned kpis for the business most people have zero kpis for their household awesome like that's there's, there's there's nothing that they measure right and, you know, so we actually created like 17, 18 different financial metrics that people can use to measure the financial condition of your household. Like your effective tax rate would be a, would be an indicator, right? Um, your, uh, your debt to income ratio would be an indicator. Your net worth would be an indicator. Um, you know, we have, uh, uh, what else? We have 
like a, a savings ratio would be an indicator. I mean, we have, yeah, like a whole bunch of like these, these indicators for the household, mm -hmm. right? So that that owner can now, again, you're trying to run your household like a business, you need stats to run them. 100%. Right? So, and this, again, this is kind of the indictment of our, my industry is that there's only a couple of dental um, specific advisors or practice advisors out there that I've seen that have kind of adopted that approach. You mm -hmm. know, most of them, you know, the Smith Barney or the Ameriprise guys, it's just, hey, how much do you got? Or here's a big fat insurance policy. Let me sell you that. Yeah, no, you're sure. totally right. Cause you know, yeah. we've, we've been, we've seen, talked to a lot of people and a lot of times that's where it ends up. Yep. We hear lots about insurance. Yeah. <laughs> you need I'm sure you guys do. Yeah. People love to pitch dentist insurance and they love to pitch you guys. What else do you know? It, it, real estate, maybe some advanced tax strategies, but not very many. Yeah. Yeah. We hear a lot about it. And, and the, the thing is though, like my dad always taught me growing up, you don't want to be insurance poor. You know, you don't want to take out and spend tons of money on the, the premiums and, and all that stuff. And then they expire if you don't get whole life or whatever. And then you just spend all that money for no reason. You know, if it doesn't go through when you take excessive amounts of insurance out, you yeah, know, you, you, protect you, ourselves. You got to build those things correctly. And, the, and, and, and most, most people that pose as like financial advisors or just kind of insurance agents, they, they just try to sell a big honking policy to a dentist who's making three or $400,000, you know, and I got no problem selling insurance. I sell insurance to dentists all the time, but it's in the scope of a plan. And I kind of use that barometer of, okay, no more than 30% of their 10%. So I build a policy that way. So it can be funded. Right. So it's not it's just to your point, it's not problematic on your cash flow by doing that. Right. So they do have a place. Don't get me wrong, guys. Those things do have a place in anybody's um, portfolio. But if, if someone utilizes that as the only tool, then I, you know, then I get disinterested in what that person has to say from there, mm -hmm. you know, because most advisors don't like I don't get paid on pitching real estate to people or, or telling people to buy real estate. I don't get paid for that. Right. But I know that it's super important that you do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't get paid to get people out of debt to a degree I do, but I know it's super important. I don't get paid to like, tell you how to, you know, get your estate plan. All oh, you guys, you guys should get wills and all that stuff, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, what age do you think we should come up with that sort of plan? Like the wills and all like that? Or just, and all that stuff, like uh, to leave, I mean, the first single, you know, don't yeah. have kids, no wife, nothing like that. And it's just like us, would we just leave everything in like in an account like your parents or whatever? Yeah, I, I would probably at least go get a will uh, and like some kind of a power, like if something happens to you guys, you get hit by a bus and you become disabled or something like that. Someone's got to make decisions for you. And, you know, you think that it would be your parents right away, but you know, it's not, you become wards of the state. So I, I would just make sure you get like just a basic will and some powers of attorney for healthcare and, and uh, financial decisions. Those are, those would be key. That doesn't cost much. You can go on legalzoom.com and get that stuff done for maybe under 300 bucks. Right. You okay. know? Uh, so Eric, last topic here. I, we've covered everything, man. It's been awesome. Awesome. So we've got uh, really big eyes, really big appetite. Yeah. Um, so, well, so I was talking to somebody the other day and they were saying that they want to eventually sell their group do a roll up, sell it to a bigger group and then put it all into a REIT and then just own like a, an apartment complex and it's all in a, in a REIT. So kind of a cool idea though, right? 
So what do you think when building a dental group, you know, maybe three, four, maybe 10 practices, what do you think are some of the most important factors to take into account uh, when you're, when you're building a, a big group of a bunch of associates and partners? Okay. Well, uh, if you're going to have a really big organization, you're actually, your key is to, is to learn how to grow many groups in that big group. Right. right. What, I, what, I, what I mean by that is that you're going to have to, a big group is just comprised of small groups. Okay. You're talking so, about the parent company has all the little smaller companies to go along. Yeah, but exactly. But what I'm talking about is if you look at any big organization, they of course have like, a, a, you know, they're, they're built in little teams. They may be teams of three or five or whatever that would be. And you, you got to think that way when you're trying to build, if you're trying to scale a big organization, right? Obviously you're going to have, you're going to have to hire really good executives um, and then build the infrastructure so that, you know, there's, there's teams inside of the, of this big giant group that you're trying to create. And, you know, it, it's, <laughs> that, that to me is kind of like the, cause you, there's no way you can manage 50 people right. or hundred people, of course. right? The one person can probably theoretically only manage about five people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's when you want to start, you know, when you're building your organization, you know, start thinking that way, as far as like, who would I have, who's going to be in charge of like, um, the delivery of, of my organization, who's going to be in charge of the treasury, who's going to be in charge of the, the human resources, like build your layers of executives from there and then hire and then have team members for each of those divisions as well. Um, but I think if that's what the, the, what you're trying to do, I think you're going to have to be really, really good right. on organization that, that to me would be the key to scaling something like that, Definitely. you know, okay. and, um, if you can get good at that, then you can totally do it. Yeah. So I've already created like a organizational chart. Yeah, good. I'm like trying to think like, okay, how many practices do you need until you start like building a C-suite? And so from what I've been able to uh, <laughs> research is that most like big groups, the first person in the C-suite they take on is like a CFP who becomes the, uh, the CFO, you know? And yeah, yeah. Like, okay, yeah, CFO of the, uh, of the business. Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah. usually one of the first, besides the CEO, the, the founder, owner, the first one they find is like the CFO. And yeah, then a, I guess- CFO or, or a COO, a chief operating officer as well, right. would probably be somebody that would, that would be, um, yeah, but you know, there, there's, I mean, I guess you could just, uh, there's a lot of these groups that you can just go talk to, Yeah. you know, and just ask them. I mean, <laughs> really successful groups, they'll tell you, like, this yeah. is what we do. This is yeah. exactly how we do it. And then just copy them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cause there's no way, even if you copy them exactly, there's no way yours is going to come out the same, you know? No, no, you'll have your own creation on it, but I mean, it, there, there's still some stable points in place that you have, but uh, I mean, that's the fun part of it, I guess, is trying to do that. <laughs> it's a, it's a big job, but you know, other people, are done, so why not you? Yeah. And then I, I have one more quick question. So we were talking about like, if we were to go in to have a group together, just we'll, we'll talk about that. Number one, do you guys like each other? Yes. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit. But one thing we were talking about was, we'll, we'll just use my situation. So my mom is the director of surgery in the hospital. Like she runs yeah. the operating room, 60% of the hospital's, uh, you know, production, everything comes from my mom's department. Yeah. She runs the, like one of the hardest jobs in the world is running an operating room. She has to manage ego and everything. But 
in order to run a dental practice is a lot easier than running an operating room. So to bring her in or somebody with her skill set to manage and run an operating room the way she does, where she has like 85 people versus us, we'd have in a small group, you know, we'd have half that at most, you know what I mean? So doing that, do you think it would be a good idea to bring in some like a family member with like an incredible skill set or would you shy away from that? No, I, I'm, there's a, I got a physical therapy owner that's going to sell his business for $23 million, somewhere around there. He's got his aunt working for him on his, uh, on his, on his treasury side and, and building collections, right? No, not at all. As long as they're competent, you know, you, you want competency. Okay. Like that, that's just not, an, you just don't see that as much out there as like competency. And, you know, you don't, you, you really want to you hire people to me. And we just made this, you know, you know, sometimes we make our mistakes ourselves. We, we, we don't hire attitude and like emotional intelligence and tone level, right? Sometimes people think experience is more important than that. And it's not, right? Okay. It really isn't. Okay. And I never, ever hire someone that just because they have a ton of experience, but they're, you know, but they got a bad attitude or they're, you know, they just don't think you don't use good judgment. Like if you can find those people, you can train them. Like they'll be willing to learn anything. Yeah. You know, and to me, that's, that's really, really key. And I'm, you know, I have personal experience with that is, is, yeah. is trying to fit it, is making sure you hire people based upon their emotional intelligence and competency. And that's way more important than maybe, you know, someone else that may have a little bit more of experience in, in that particular area. Awesome. Awesome. Listen, Eric, awesome. You guys want to do this again? Sometimes I can talk about this shit for like two, three hours. <laughs> Please. Do awesome. we, yeah. so, we I'll tell you what, Eric, you're hired. You're, this has been one of our best conversations. You're hired. <laughs> yeah. man. And well, whatever you guys want to like really dig deep in taxes too, because that's where yeah. it gets good. Let's hey, listen, next yeah. episode, let's do taxes. Okay. Just fire fire away. If you guys um maybe I could because I don't have your I don't think I have any of your emails or anything like that. I don't know. Yeah, I yeah. can just I can uh, send you my contact information. So whenever you guys want to reach yeah. out and you want to talk about something, just let me know. Yeah, absolutely. And just to make it super easy for you, this is Dental Student Vibes Podcast, is dentalstudentvibes at gmail.com. And to all of our listeners. Feel free to email us with any questions that you have for Eric as well. And Eric, if you don't mind, uh, can you give our listeners your contact information and how to reach you? Yeah, you can go to, um, uh, you can see in the background, Econologics, which is probably the worst name we could ever picked, you know, if this, for a financial planning company, but there is a meaning behind it. Um, econologics.com, or you can go to wealthfordentists.com, wealthfordentists.com, either one of those two. I love that. Wealth for devs. That's great. All right, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it really has. Um, and then uh, well, I guess we'll stay online so I can get maybe one of your email addresses. You got it. Perfect. All right. Take cool. care, Eric. Thank you. See you guys.